on my wedding day with Chloe, immediately when I saw Chloe walk down the aisle, I burst into tears, like ugly tears, like gross tears. I just started crying right away when I saw her. But Chloe didn't. <laughs> she held her composure. She was calm, collected. Man, she was, she was cool as a cucumber for most of the wedding ceremony. She held her composure all the way until we exchanged our wedding vows. And so what actually uh, cracked her, and I still remember the moment when I was looking at her, what actually cracked her and what actually caused her to experience tears as we were in our wedding ceremony was actually the, the wedding vow part. And I think that that's so profound because I think there's something that's so beautiful about wedding vows. There is something that is so amazing about verbally just saying out loud your commitment to one another that is emotionally rich and romantically rich. And I'm guessing that if you grew up in the church, you probably don't see the Ten Commandments that way. That's just a guess. I, I might be wrong, but if you grew up in church, I'm guessing that you saw the Ten Commandments maybe as ten ways to earn God's favor, or ten tips to achieve salvation, or ten simple strategies to impress your God, or ten good ideas, or ten ways to be a good person. Traditional Jewish wedding ceremonies get it, though. Like, I've never been to one, but apparently traditional Jewish ceremonies get the fact that the Ten Commandments are way more complex and way more relationally dense than just ten good ideas for what your life might look like. In fact, like I said, I've never been to one, but apparently at Jewish wedding ceremonies, they're liturgically structured around the Exodus. So in the ceremony, what the husband and wife do is they recite God's four promises to one another from Exodus 6. I will take you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will take you to me. And at one of the biggest moments in the ceremony after that, what the groom and the bride do is they publicly in front of the audience sign a legal document of all that their marriage is going to entail. What is that modeled off of? What is that supposed to symbolize? It's supposed to symbolize the Ten Commandments. And so here's what I'm kind of, I'm begging with you right now. I'm kind of pleading with you that as we look at the Ten Commandments and as we look at Mount Sinai this morning, don't forget the context. These commandments are being given in the middle of a covenant between Israel and Yahweh. What I'm saying is that these are emotionally rich wedding vows that remind us that we are in a covenant with Yahweh and we don't want to cheat on him because we love him. So see the Ten Commandments in all of their richness. See them in all of their flavor. And let's look at them in Exodus 20 together. You can stand for the reading of God's word. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me 
and keep my commandments. So you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in the sixth day the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And now... When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. So Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. You can have a seat. Um, so if you've, if you've been part of the Frontier Church family for a while now, I, I think that my goal in my sermon this morning might surprise you. So my, my goal in this sermon this morning, it, it's not actually to exhaustively explain every itty-bitty detail of all of the Ten Commandments because we don't have time for that. We just don't. And so I think that I can use our time, uh, I can leverage it, I think, to be a little bit more effective in the way that I handled the pulpit this morning. And so my goal this morning, rather than exhaustively explaining all of the Ten Commandments, is, is more simple than that. What I want to do is I want to give you multiple tools that you yourself can take home with you and use to crack the Ten Commandments open and get all of the depth and get all of the richness that you can out of them. But we're going to need a few tools because I don't know if you've noticed this or heard this, but the prevailing West Western understanding of the Ten Commandments kind of stinks. You've heard this, like you've heard this perspective before. You've, you've heard this vantage point of the Ten Commandments before. It usually sounds like this. Cole, I'm a New Testament Christian. Why should I care about the Old Testament Ten Commandments? That is a stinking perspective on the Ten Commandments, man. Like, we've got to go deeper than that. And yet, what I want to do is I want to cut to the sharpest question about the Ten Commandments right away. It's the million-dollar question that every Christian has when they read the Old Testament Ten Commandments. And it's actually the first question that the Ten Commandments address in the Old Testament. So let's tackle it head-on. The question is, do I, Cole, do I have to obey the Old Testament Ten Commandments if I'm a New Testament Christian. And it depends on what you mean by have to. That's a tricky word, right? I mean, that's a tricky phrase. Do I have to obey them? Because the way that you define that depends on the way that you answer that. So it totally depends. Let me show you what I mean, because the answer to that is yes and no. Do I have to obey the Ten Commandments to honor God? Yes. 
Do I have to obey the Ten Commandments to know God more deeply? Yes. Do I have to obey the Ten Commandments to be part of bringing heaven to earth and God's kingdom? Yes. Do I have to obey the Ten Commandments to imitate God? Yes. To image God? Yes. To express my love to God? Yeah. To express my love to others? Yes. But here's the other million-dollar question. Do I have to obey the Ten Commandments to earn salvation? Big fat no. Church, you, you cannot, you can't use these Ten Commandments as a tool to earn salvation. You can explode that myth by asking one simple question about the text. I hope you find it humorous because it's ridiculous. But ask yourself this question. If Israel perfectly obeys all ten of these commandments, will God finally save them out of Egypt? What? Where are we in the narrative right now? God has already saved them out of Egypt. Israel has already been saved. Israel has already been delivered from slavery. Israel has already been delivered from Egypt. And so you cannot fit into the framework of the scriptures the story of being justified and earning salvation by the law. It doesn't fit. I mean, this is a warning to you. you the, the Ten Commandments, they will kill you if you try to earn your salvation with them. Think about this. If Israel had tried to obey the Ten Commandments in Egypt to earn their salvation, they would have gotten themselves killed. Take the fourth commandment, for instance. The fourth commandment is, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That is impossible for them to keep in Egypt. They couldn't keep it in Egypt. They don't have the freedom to keep it in Egypt. They don't have the power to keep it in Egypt. If they had tried to set apart one single day out of the week and rest in Egypt, their slave drivers would have killed them. The same is true for us. If we try to use these as a tool for getting out of Egypt, as a tool for earning salvation, we'll just get stuck in a cycle that will absolutely crush us. We'll have good weeks. We'll have bad weeks. On our good weeks, we'll think, well, I must be saved. On our bad weeks, we'll think, well, then maybe I'm not saved. And you'll get stuck in this ugly cycle of, am I saved or am I not saved? Am I saved or am I not saved? And so this is just a warning that obeying these commandments cannot be a prerequisite for being saved because you don't have the power to obey these commandments unless you've been saved. And this is so obvious even in the way that the text gives us the Ten Commandments. Because, for instance, how do the Ten Commandments begin? Well, let me give you a few wrong answers. Wrong answer number one. The Ten Commandments begin with a moral demand. Wrong. That's not how the Ten Commandments begin. Look closer. Wrong answer number two. Uh, well, the Ten Commandments begin with the command to have no other gods before Yahweh. That's it. Wrong answer. Look even closer at your text. Wrong answer number three. Okay, Cole, the Ten Commandments begin with the first commandment. That's got to be the right answer. No. Wrong answer. Look even closer at your text. The Ten Commandments begin with the gospel. Before God even gives a single command, look at how he reminds them of the glorious gospel of free salvation. This is chapter 20, verse 1 through 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt 
out of the house of slavery. Guys, God saves us by grace alone, and then he gives us the commandments. Gospel first, gospel first, gospel first. Now, once you have this gospel first understanding of the Ten Commandments, when you've got this gospel first foundations of the Ten Commandments, then we can kind of go to work, and we can, we can really go to work on some of these Ten Commandments and start to understand them. So let me give you a few tools for cracking them open. First, when you read the Ten Commandments, read them as revolution. Now, when I say that you should read the Ten Commandments as revolution, what I mean is that as we obey the Ten Commandments and fall in love with them and implement them into our lives, they will transform us into people who look totally different from the rest of the world. I mean, these things are revolutionary. A lot of us grew up with them, so we don't, we don't see how much they actually pop off the page, but even the fact of the Ten Commandments is revolutionary. The fact that we have the Ten Commandments is revolutionary. Most ancient religions did have covenants like this, but their gods actually just participated in them as witnesses. They just looked at them. And so the idea was that in the ancient worldview, the gods were like way out there, right? They're like on the top of mountains. They're, they're way out there, and they're just kind of looking at us from a distance. And so when we do our important things and when we develop covenants, what we should probably do is we should ask, we should invoke the gods to, to watch this and look at this. And then if we fail our covenants, then we'll ask the gods to help us. But this is a totally radical idea that you see in the Ten Commandments. You don't just see God witnessing this covenant. He's not just looking at it from a distance. This is a huge quantum leap forward in the way that people view God. The idea, the question behind the Ten Commandments is a whole new understanding of God. It asks the question, what if God weren't just a distant observer who watches us make covenants? What if God were actually intimately involved and made the covenant with us? What if he was intimately involved in all of the little details of our life? This was so progressive in the ancient world. This is a huge step forward in knowing God. I mean, for instance, just look at the first commandment in chapter 20, verse 3. You've heard it before. You shall have no other gods before me. But here's the thing. You've got to realize that um, even after the wilderness, um, many of these Israelites had grown up in Egypt. And so participating in a pantheon of Egyptian gods, it would have been like the most natural and traditional mode of religion to them. Monotheism in this era, it was totally unheard of. I mean, we've put some of our, like our best brains and our best scholars to work trying to find other ancient religions around this time that practice monotheism, and the results are totally empty. This is revolutionary. And so Israel would have been shocked to see God not just witnessing this covenant, but involved in this covenant and then demanding 100% of their allegiance to stand across from him at the wedding altar and hear Yahweh say, it's you and me for life, baby, would have shocked them. No other gods before me. And the idea of monotheism isn't that revolutionary anymore. You know, like we get that most Western uh, religions practice monotheism. And so the idea of monotheism isn't radical, but the practice of it still is. Like if you're actually practicing monotheism, that will make you revolutionary. If you've ever bumped into anybody who doesn't worship God plus money, you're like, dude, there's something different about this cat. 
If you've ever bumped into somebody who actually worships God plus nothing, it is revolutionary. And so God is creating for himself a people who only give their allegiance to them. And this is going to make a revolution out in the wilderness. It's going to make Israel attractive and different and set apart and unique. I want you to see this. Work your way through the Ten Commandments this week and just ask yourself, how is this a revolutionary understanding of God? And when you do that, let me give you a second tool for understanding the Ten Commandments. This will help you go really, really deep. When you read the Ten Commandments, read them as revelation, as a covenant that reveals to us the character of God, or kind of think about how the laws reveal the nature of the lawgiver. Now, most of us, we don't naturally think that way about commandments, right? I mean, what do you do when you bump into a commandment in the Bible? You bump into a commandment, and what you do is you think, oh, I should obey that. I need to do that. I have to do that. And that's a perfectly healthy understanding of the commandments. That's part of them. But what I'm saying is you can actually go deeper than that. You can go deeper than that by simply applying one question to the commandments. Apply this question to it. What does it teach me about the character of God? So let's look at the second commandment, chapter 20, verse 4, and I'll show you the way that this unpacks God's character. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Now, at first glance, this is one of those commandments that you look at as a postmodern person, and you just kind of think, is it, I mean, what does that even mean? And so you'll see people point at commandments like this and say, hey, see, your, your God is actually arbitrary. He's just kind of up there in heaven making up rules that don't make any sense, that don't really mean anything. He's just kind of like a toddler up in heaven. One week he likes macaroni and cheese. The next week he doesn't like macaroni and cheese for no uh, purpose whatsoever. He makes these laws. He makes those laws. But what you don't see is so much of this commandment. Carving idols out of wood and stone was the total norm for ancient Near Eastern religions. It was the total norm. Every other ancient religion believed that by carving an idol out of wood and breathing into it, that magic ritual would ensure that the presence of their God was in that little wooden object. Now, what's the harm in that? What's the harm in a little bit of voodoo? Well, it turns out there's actually a lot of, a lot of harm in that. Ancient religions would build an entire system of temple prostitution around these idols. And the Israelites, still relatively fresh in their relationship with Yahweh, they would actually just assume that their relationship with Yahweh was going to include idolatry and carved images. They probably just would have assumed that. But nevertheless, the second commandment reveals to us something about the character of God, something about the heart of God. It teaches us that he's a jealous God. He doesn't want his people thinking that they can put him into a box by carving something out of stone and then bowing down and worshiping it. God is a jealous God. He's jealous for his glory. He doesn't want the glory that he deserves going to a little image, man. He doesn't want the glory that he deserves just going to a little stone. He doesn't want the glory that he deserves going to this entire system of temple prostitution that's going to support idolatry. That's not the character of God. God is a loving God. He's a jealous God. He's jealous for his glory, and he's jealous for our good. So as you work your way through the Ten Commandments throughout the week, just apply that question to it. What does this command reveal to me about the character of God? And then once you get there, there's another way for you to crack open the Ten Commandments. Let me give you a third tool for understanding the Ten Commandments. 
When you read the Ten Commandments, read them as relationship, as an invitation to drawing near to God and to walking with God and to having a relationship with God. Look at the third commandment in particular. This is chapter 20, verse 7. The third commandment, I mean, this poor commandment, this has got to be the most misunderstood commandment of all ten of them. Poor guy. 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, we totally miss the point of this commandment when we think that what God is doing is prohibiting us from using the phrase, oh, my God. Now, I'm not saying that you should walk around and just drop OMG bombs whenever you feel like it. But what I'm saying is that if you conceptualize the third commandment as just not using the phrase, oh my God, what you'll actually do is slacken the law and you'll actually end up cheapening the law because God is not God's name. What's God's name? Yahweh. And taking the Lord's name in vain doesn't mean being surprised and using a phrase. Taking the Lord's name in vain means taking the Lord's name with you in vain, bearing the Lord's name, representing the Lord's name, saying that you're part of his kingdom and acting as though his kingdom doesn't exist. That's what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. This is a total demand on the entire life of the Israelites. He wants their heart. He wants their mind. He wants their soul. He wants them to take his name with them in a way that makes him look heavy and glorious, not light. And so what we actually discover in the third commandment is a prohibition from culture. Christianity. That's what's going on here. He's, he, he's prohibiting us from talking like this. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not like a Jesus freak. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I go on like Sunday mornings, but I'm not like crazy about God. That's taking the Lord's name in vain, bearing it in a way that makes him look inconsequential and light and fluffy and airy rather than glorious and beautiful and heavy. God wants relationship. And when you reduce the third commandment or any commandment in the Ten Commandments, when you reduce it by saying, oh, if I don't use that phrase, then I'm good, rather than understanding it as bearing God's name meaningfully in every area of your life, you are hollowing out the law and and when you hollow out the law, you are putting yourself in danger. Because all of a sudden, if you have hollow laws, and if you have easy-to-obey commands, what you have are no longer ten commandments. You just have a couple rules that you don't even need the Spirit of God to obey. And so you begin to think, I'm pretty good at this thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, you get there, right? Right? You start to think, I haven't used the phrase OMG for like three months. I'm getting pretty good at Christianity. And pretty soon you find yourself meditating on the Ten Commandments and reading the Ten Commandments. And you find the unthinkable happening. You begin to pick your chin up and puff your chest out. And you can't believe it, but all of a sudden you are patting yourself on the back. You're thinking, man, I'm so good at this Ten Commandments thing. You start to feel high and mighty. And if at any point in time, church, because I love you, if you find yourself reading the Ten Commandments, puffing your chest out and saying, I got this, fall to your face and ask for forgiveness. Don't let yourself get there, man. Reading these Ten Commandments, studying them and thinking, I got this, is the least Christian response in the world. Then there's this 
I think this really illustrates it. There's a story about a man who attended a Christian parenting conference. It's, it's not my story. It comes from Paul Tripp. Paul Tripp is a really good Bible teacher, and he tells this story about attending a, a parenting confer- conference on, on family worship. And he said it was this really well-known preacher, and as he preached on family worship and the importance of family worship, which we should think is monumentally important, but as the preacher continued to preach, he gave all of these dazzling stories that made him look like the hero. He gave all these amazing examples of the way that he implemented family worship in his life with like, with like total perfection and total diligence and total astuteness. And part of that is good, right? Because we should have a high view. We should have a high vision for family worship. We should have a high vision for law. We should have a high vision for Ten Commandments. But as this listener continued to listen to this preacher, he said he could just kind of feel this spirit this spirit of discouragement settle in all around him from these broken down, beat up parents who love family worship enough to be at this conference but are not perfect enough to do what he's doing. He just feels their hearts breaking around him. And so he begins to say underneath his breath, okay, that's good, but show him grace. Show him grace. That's a good point, but show him grace. Okay, that's a good example, but show him mercy, show him grace. And he says the grace never came. And so after the conference, what he did is he walked up to the conference speaker, he walked up to the preacher, and he said to the preacher, hey man, loved your talk, love family worship, but let me ask you a question. If a single mother from your church came up to you and said, pastor, I know I'm supposed to have all of these devotions with my family, but things are so chaotic in my house that I can barely get myself out of bed and get the children fed and off to school and put money and food on the table. I don't know how I would ever be able to pull off these devotions too. What would you say to this single mother? What an opportunity to share Jesus, right? Like what an opportunity to share grace and gospel. And what the preacher said instead, and I hope this boils your blood, was, I'm a pastor, which means I carry many more burdens for many more people than you do, and if I can pull off daily family worship, you should be able to pull it off too. Come on, man. What a way to destroy somebody. What a way to crush somebody. And what I want to ask is, do you get this way too? When you read the Ten Commandments, well, if I can pull it off, then everybody else should be able to pull it off too. Do you get this way? Because whenever Jesus encounters somebody like this in the Gospels, it like never goes well. Almost never. Whenever Jesus bumps into somebody who's thinking that they're fulfilling the law perfectly, basically it's because he realizes that they have relaxed the law and they have failed to see the law holistically. And so Jesus applies what theologians call the external-internal rule. That's a really abstract way of saying if the law applies to your external condition, then Jesus will also apply it to your internal condition in your heart. Right? You see Jesus do this with the, the sixth commandment, do not commit murder. But when Jesus bumps into somebody who thinks that they're fulfilling that perfectly, he says, hey, I'll tell you something, man. If you even hate your brother in your heart, you have committed murder. External, internal. We see this even with the seventh command. The seventh command is do not, do not commit adultery. 
And when Jesus bumps into people who think that they've got this all figured out, he says, oh, you think you've got that one down? Bro, even if you look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery in your heart. External. Internal. I mean, this is, this is wild. This is, this is so strange, right? Jesus was so strange. I mean, when he bumped into people who thought that they were doing an awesome bang-up job of keeping the commandments, he always intensified the commandments on them. And whenever he bumped into somebody who knew that they couldn't keep them but loved them but was breaking underneath them and couldn't keep the commandments perfectly, he like always showed them grace. And so when you see Jesus handle the Ten Commandments and when you see Jesus handle all of these commandments, you begin to wonder like, oh my gosh, am I missing something about the law? Like, is it actually more emotionally rich? Is it actually more complex? Is it more beautiful? Is it bigger? Is it better than I'd actually thought? How should I, how should I respond to the Ten Commandments? Well, look at chapter 20, verses 18 through 21. I'll give you a hint. You shouldn't respond to the Ten Commandments by thinking, oh, I'm pulling this off. Look at how Israel responds to this. This is amazing. After the giving of the Ten Commandments, Chapter 20, verse 18 says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and they said to Moses, You speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And so Moses said to the people, Do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And so the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So look at Israel. I think you should respond to the Ten Commandments like Israel responds to them. Right? Israel doesn't look at the Ten Commandments and see a religious job application and think, oh, I could do that. They don't look at the Ten Commandments and think, that's easy enough for me to do. Easy peasy. That's not what we see in their response, man. They hear God speaking through thunder and lightning, and they feel the weight of his law and how it demands all of their heart, how it demands all of their soul and body and mind, and they cry out to Moses, you speak to us. If God speaks to us, man, we'll die. We'll never live up to that. They say, they say Moses, we need somebody to stand between us and God. We need somebody to fill in the gap between us and God. Man, this is so beautiful because Moses draws near to God for them, and I think that you should respond this way when you hear the Ten Commandments, man. I think it is perfectly healthy and natural to think, God, your, God, your commandments, they are, they're good, and they provide a pathway for life for my life, and I want to obey them, and I want to do them, and I want to honor you with them, but i got to be honest with you, God i got to be honest with you, I've got a couple kids at home, and I'm just trying to survive off three hours of sleep. I don't know how I'm going to obey these things too, man. Man, I'm just trying to get through 40 hours of working every week without losing my soul. I don't know how I'm going to do these Ten Commandments thing. I think you're perfectly Christian if you're in that area. Because what you'll do is you'll think, oh my gosh, I need somebody to stand in the gap. I need somebody to stand between me and God. I need a Moses. 
And Christianity is so amazing because that's exactly what Jesus does for us. He is our mediator. Jesus stands in the gap between us and God. Jesus takes on flesh, and he's like a living, breathing fulfillment of the law. Jesus, what Jesus is and who Jesus is, is he's basically like the law with arms and legs on it. You know, it's what the law looks like when it's lived out perfectly. It's what the law looks like when it's perfectly obeyed. It's what the law smells like when it's perfectly loved. And Jesus doesn't just stand in the gap between us and God. He dies in the gap between us and God. And that matters. That matters because that means that if you have Jesus, you have the fulfillment of the law. Amen? And that means that if you think that you can fulfill the law, you might not have Jesus. He might mean nothing to you, man. I've been thinking about, um, I've been thinking about my kids and how much I want them to get this, you know. Russell and Della are two kids. I just want them to get the fact that the law is delightful and it's lovely and it's worthy of your affections and obeying it. And nevertheless, you will fail it and be crushed and God will still love you. I want my kids to get that because I'm confronted with this like every time I read children's literature. (laughs) Children's literature is awesome. I love it because it confronts like fundamental human problems and not abstract ones like a lot of adult literature pretends to, you know, deal with. But kids' literature is like fundamental. But nevertheless, if you've ever read kids' literature, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's like all law and no gospel. Like if you read if you read a lot of kids' literature, it's all about perfect little well-behaved children who don't even seem to need Jesus. And like I, sometimes I read through some of these, and I'm like, man, is this just going to crush my kids? Like, are they just going to grow up thinking that they could never measure up to this stuff and never measure up to all these characters? Let me give you one example. This comes from the first book of My Car. So My Car is about a dude named Sam. <laughs> Chloe and I, we argue endlessly about this book, and it's totally my fault. It's t- I, I'm totally overdramatic about this. I'll show you what I mean. This book is called My Car, and it's about Sam. And it's all about how Sam takes perfect care of his car, how he shines it at the right time, how he always cleans it, how he always fills it with gasoline. And these are all really good examples, right? It's like the law. You look at it, and you're like, yeah, I should do that. But nevertheless, you read through My Car, and you're like, man, that's good. But, like, Sam, show me some grace, bro. My car's a mess. And you read through this, and you're like, okay, I'm glad that you're able to do this perfectly, Sam. And so you read through all these explanations about how Sam perfectly cares for his car in the crescendo of the book. Can I just share with you, the, like, the high point of the book? The high point of the book is when Sam evaluates all that he does, and he says, I obey the laws. Okay. Okay, Sam, you obey the laws. I mean, Sam, do you even know that in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, there are 613 commands, including the Ten Commandments, and you obey all of them? Maybe what Sam doesn't understand is the external, internal application, right? Maybe Sam thinks that if he goes 25 and a 25, he hasn't broken the law. Bro, I know you want to go 40. You have sped in your heart. And you have broken the law. Maybe he doesn't understand that the law is supposed to be holistic. Like, I know that you usually stop at the stoplight, 
But if you even blow it once, that invalidates all of it, and you have broken the law, even though you follow the stoplight all the time. I just don't think Sam gets this. And whenever Chloe and I argue about this, she's like, Cole, and she's totally right. She's like, Russell just needs a good example of somebody who does obey the rules. Because he's not getting that at home. <laughs> okay, chill. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I do want Russell to follow, you know, the traffic laws, and I do want him to follow the Ten Commandments and everything like that, and I do want him to have a good example of following the laws. But in my defense, that's not what the text says, okay? I mean, if right there in plain English, as derived from the original Hebrew, Sam doesn't say, I'm a good example of trying to follow the law. He says, I obey the laws. Now, this is obviously a silly example. But, like, do you, do you actually ever wonder, like, how many children's story about perfect kids it actually takes to get into a kid's heart and narrative and make him believe subtly that only perfect people are worthy of being loved? I mean, honestly, like, we laugh at Sam, but I read stuff like that, and I wonder, how deeply ingrained is this in the substructure of your theology? You know the Bible. You know that Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners, and you still struggle to believe that God loves you when you don't measure up to Sam. You know that God saves and loves sinners, and yet when you commit adultery, you struggle so much to believe that God has grace for you. Yet when you commit murder in your heart by hating your brother, you feel like it's impossible that Jesus would ever love you. You have all these examples in literature that are made up of these perfect people, and they just crush you. And you read the Ten Commandments, and they're beautiful, and you want to do them, but you can't perfectly, you can't perfectly obey them. So where does that leave you, man? And I know that my kids are going to get this, and I know Russell and Della. What I want them to know is, Dad, if I don't measure up to these children, will God still love me? If I don't measure up to the Ten Commandments, if I don't measure up to the law, will God still love me? I want to be so clear with my answer here. And so I wrote my kids a poem. And as I was studying this week, I just realized that I had written my church a poem. So let me read it for you, and I hope it helps you. Impossibly obedient, impeccably, impeccably dressed, always forever on their Sunday best, these are the children that we meet in the kids' books we read. Never no less than their best behavior. They don't even seem to need a savior. These are the children that we meet in the kids' books we read. But most of these books are fairy tales. Sam is made up <laughs> and honestly a little stale. Kids make mistakes. Kids need forgiveness. One look at Israel and that's what you'll witness. That's partly how we know the Bible for sure is true. It's filled with messy people just like me and you. So here's what I want us to know. If you look nothing like the kids in kids' books and behave in ways that earn your dad's dirty looks because sometimes you throw fits and pick your nose and throw spaghetti and get it all over your clothes and you need your mom to forgive your sins every day and you can't obey the Ten Commandments, try as you may. If you're like Israel with transgressions piled up to space, then you're the perfect kid to experience God's grace. Galatians 3, 24. So the law became our guardian to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. 
That's the gospel. Let's pray.